This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I was joined by Dr Richard Dennis. Richard is Executive Director of the Australia Institute and he joined me to talk about his new essay in The Monthly on tax reform. It's called Tax to Grind. Richard says that tax reform is actually about democracy, not economics, and reforms should not be centred on what we want as a country, but on who we want to be. Richard debunks the economic myths and misnomers that we're constantly being told and that seek to prevent us from engaging in the conversation about what we want our country to look like and just what kind of tax reforms are required to make it happen. Richard also talks about the intertwining issues of rising company profits, interest rates, the supermarket duopoly and price gouging. Then I was joined by Andrew Quilty. Andrew is an award-winning photojournalist and he joined me for an in-depth conversation about his latest book, This is Afghanistan, 2014 to 2021. The stunning book, is a visual record of the nine years that Andrew spent living and working in the complex, beautiful and war-torn country of Afghanistan. Andrew shares his experiences photographing the war in Afghanistan, capturing life, destruction, conflict and the natural landscape. Links to some of the images that we discuss are in the podcast description. This is Afghanistan is published by Maigunya Press, an imprint of Melbourne University Publishing. Then, finally, I was joined by Dr. Emma Shortis. Emma is a historian, a US politics expert and senior researcher in the International and Security Affairs Program at the Australia Institute. Emma joined me to talk all things US politics, including President Joe Biden's recent foreign policy and diplomatic approach to Israel and the Middle East, as well as the intersection of Russian and far-right US politics the death of Alexei Navalny, and the second anniversary of Russia's war in Ukraine, with President Zelensky pushing for more US funding and support. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the show Dr Richard Dennis, who is Executive Director of the Australia Institute. Richard is joining me to talk about a range of topics. Most importantly, it is essentially tax reform. We're going to be centering our conversation around an essay that Richard has written for the monthly in their March edition, which has been published online and is coming out in print as well. And it's very exciting because I know you might be rolling your eyes at this moment when I'm talking about tax reform and saying the word exciting, but Richard does make it exciting and he makes it very engaging. The title of the piece is called Tax to Grind. And the essential message of the piece is that tax reform needs to be centred on who we want to be. The message that I get from Richard all the time is that tax reform is about democracy and not economics. It's about the shape of what we want, not necessarily the size of the economy, but how it is built, what choices we make. It's all about making choices. And that's what this piece gets across so well. We're also going to draw in some of the core issues that have been floating around recently in the news cycle, including competition and the supermarket duopoly. I welcome onto the program, Dr. Richard Dennis. Hi there, Richard. Thank you very much for joining us on Uncommon Sense. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back on. And there's a lot going on with 
the Australia Institute as well, I should say, before we jump in, into your uh, essay, because I know that you're hosting some very special guests that are coming to Australia, including uh, Yanis Varoufakis, former Greek finance minister, and also Anat Tong, who's the former president of Kiribati. There's some really great events happening there. Can you tell us what is driving you there at the Australia <laughs> Institute and driving all of this phenomenal productivity? <laughs> What's driving us? Uh, yeah. White hot rage. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we, we live in one of the richest countries in the world, one of the richest points in world history. We've got enormous challenges to face and especially climate change and we just get told we can't afford to do anything about it and nonsense and uh yeah here at the australian institute we do a lot of research on a lot of things uh tax economic policy climate change uh accountability transparency all of these things all uh all lead to some simple conclusions and those simple conclusions are uh, that other countries do exist, other countries do it better than us, and there's absolutely no reason Australia couldn't uh, significantly improve uh, a whole bunch uh, of things if only we were willing to have honest democratic debates about it. And we, we think bringing international speakers out is a great way to shock people into a simple reality, and that is just because major parties in Australia don't want to talk about something or just because uh, major newspapers in Australia don't want to talk about something, it doesn't mean that it's not important. It doesn't mean we can't fix it. Uh, and, you know, I'd say, uh, yeah, bringing Yanis Varoufakis uh, to do a tour and talk about what is and isn't possible is a great way of doing that. And bringing an Ote Tong from Kiribati to remind people that uh, if, if we keep building coal and gas, countries like Kiribati will literally disappear uh, yeah, from the Australian Institute's point of view, these are really important speakers. Uh, and sorry, that's a long answer, but it's our 30th anniversary this year. The Australian Institute's been around for 30 years and we've actually got a few other big-name international speakers that will be doing some events with us later this year as well. Oh, well, big congratulations. Thank you. What is the 30th anniversary? Is that a special one? It's not silver or gold, is it, or...? Oh, you're asking the wrong guy. I don't know anything <laughs> about these things. Someone can text in and tell me. i tell you what 30 is as a surprise for us because, um, yeah, when the Australian Institute was set up, I don't think anyone thought that we would amount to much. And 30 years later, you know, I think we're really uh, really helping, helping a lot of Australians see that we can build a better country, you know, that, that in fact most people want to and that the excuses for having uh, such crap policies policies in so many things like we'll talk about today. The excuses are uh, a wafer thin and we, we, we love helping puncture those ridiculous excuses to conceal a simple democratic thing. And that is that uh, those in power are happy with a lot of things the way they are. That's why they don't change. And if, mm. if, if we don't put pressure on them to change, they won't change. Well, I do enjoy hearing you puncture people's arguments um, <laughs> and, and you do do, them, do that a lot. And I heard one of your interviews on RN Breakfast on the Stage 3 tax cuts, and I think it actually was with Innes Willox. Um, yep. And, oh, it was really enjoyable to, <laughs> to hear the differences between you. Um, but could you, like, that's how you open your piece, is to say there is a, an essential difference between what you're talking about and what industry groups and business lobby groups like the Business Council of Australia, like AIG, the Australian Industry Group, you know, they have different standpoints, but they're also kind of utilising or mobilising different arguments, different evidence bases. 
Can you take us through what those differences are, how and why you're going up head to head, you know, with some of these big um, lobby groups and, you know, using perhaps stage three as an example? Uh, absolutely. And let me start somewhere, you know, you alluded to this in your intro, but let me start somewhere a bit weird. For me, tax reform is exactly the same thing as democratic change. Uh, forget the word tax and reform, both seem really boring. If you want to change the country you live in, if you want to see big change in the country you live in, then you want to change what we tax and what we don't tax. You want to change what we subsidise and what we don't subsidise. The beautiful thing about the budget papers, the beautiful thing about the tax debate is it strips away all of the spin. And you just ask yourself the question, who are we taxing and who are we giving public money to? And, and, and when you see tax reform through the prism of who's getting taxed and who's getting cash, I promise it just brings a, a, a cleansing light <laughs> to an otherwise turgid or deliberately turgid mm. conversation. So the reason that we at the Australia Institute spend so much time, you know, debunking nonsense economic arguments and and debating, you know, really vacuous concepts put forward by uh, groups like the industry, Australian Industry Group or the BCA. The reason we do this uh, is because if if the only people participating in a debate about tax reform are business groups that want tax cuts for themselves or for high-income earners, guess what we'll get? We'll get tax cuts for businesses and high-income earners. There's nothing complicated about this. But by making tax reform seem so boring that most people don't want to participate in it, for decades, powerful groups have just got hundreds of billions of our dollars shoveled into their bank accounts while people are off kind of doing more interesting things. So I pride myself on doing the things that no one else wants to do. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, hopefully I can convince some of your readers, uh, your listeners, sorry, the people that read the essay, uh, that, you know, everyone needs to pay attention to these debates about who we choose to tax and who we choose to subsidise. If you think we should maybe tax the gas industry and subsidise the renewables industry, then you care about tax reform. And if you don't want enormous tax cuts for high income earners and you want more money spent on unemployed people, then you care about tax reform. And if you if you don't engage in a debate about tax reform, you're not really engaging in the main democratic debates in Australia. Yeah. And one of the topics that came up in that stage three debate, naturally because it was about income tax, um, was the f- and it's an argument that's always or consistently deployed is oh Australia is you know the the tax pie is too heavily reliant on income tax we're not d- deploying other taxes like wealth taxes or inheritance taxes although no wealthy person would bring that up but yep. you know that we're not using other means to tax people we're we're focusing too much on everyone's income but you already well very easily debunk that as well in your piece by saying that. When compared to the size of our economy, taxes on personal income in Australia account for a very relatively small portion of our national income, just 11.5% for Australia, compared to 20.3% for Norway and 17.3% for the OECD average. So, you know, the the proportion is definitely not a, a good argument. And also then total taxes on personal income 
aren't big by international standards. The top tax rate of 47%, um, which includes the Medicare levy, isn't that high in Australia either when you compare to other countries. So we're 47%, Norway 47.4%, Finland 59.4%, Japan 56.1%, Denmark 55.5%, Austria 55%. We could go on. Um, and then you also point out that uh, Australia's total tax-to-GDP ratio is still very low in comparison as well at 29.5%, while Norway's is 44.3%. All of those numbers basically amount to Australia is, you know, bugger all, taxing <laughs> incomes. Yeah. I mean, like, why? Why is that the case, Richard? And why do we feel like we're being so heavily taxed when we're not? Because oh, we've been lied to for decades. Um, yeah, so let me uh, thank you for doing the hard work of reading out the stats. Let, let me put it uh, the same point slightly differently. Australia is a low tax country. We don't collect much tax compared to other countries. Australia has uh, relatively low reliance on income tax. We don't collect uh, as, as much of our, uh, we don't collect as much in personal income tax as other countries do. And our top tax rate isn't high by international standards. A lot of other countries have much higher top tax rates than us. So pretty much everything everyone's heard about uh, the Australian tax system is what economists call complete bullshit. Uh, but complete bullshit spouted for decades from impressive-looking men in expensive suits with incredible amounts of self-confidence, uh, putting out a message that, as luck would have it, is really great for the most powerful groups in in Australia, uh, has been quite persuasive. So I don't blame people for being confused about this. The reason they're confused is because really, really well-funded, smart people have spent decades trying to confuse them. But, you know, you don't have to rely on Richard for your truth. There's this kind of top secret thing called the internet and you can use it to go to this quirky little organisation called the OECD, uh, of which uh, Matthias Cormann, our former finance minister, is the head. And, yeah, according to the pinko lefties at the OECD, run by Matthias Cormann, Australia is a low-tax country that doesn't rely very heavily on income tax. Now, this is all what economists call true, but... If I wanted to tell you a complicated story, I could I could make you feel different than that, and and the, the complicated story that uh, that the business community like to tell you is that as a percentage of the tax that Australia collects, we over rely on income tax. Like you know, so they come up with this sort of thing where where they compare the amount, the small amount of tax we pay. They say, well, as a percentage of the small amount of the total tax collected in Australia, income tax accounts for a fair whack of it. Now, there's a really simple solution to that. If Australia had a carbon tax again, by definition, we wouldn't be as reliant on income tax. If Australia had a mining tax again, by definition, our tax wouldn't uh, wouldn't be our, our total tax take wouldn't be so reliant on income tax. But why don't we have a carbon tax? Because the business community crushed it. Why don't we have uh, a carbon tax? Because the business community crushed it. And now you've got the business community saying, oh, Australia's over-reliant on income taxes, so we should cut income taxes. I mean, FFS, this is just absolutely wild that they get away with this. They are the cause of Australia having uh, an over-reliance 
on income tax because they killed off the other taxes we had. And then rather than say, oh, well, we can diversify our tax system by bringing back other good, perfectly good taxes, they're like, no, 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 we're, we're, we're over-reliant on income tax because, because uh, income taxes are too high. Brackets, they're not when you look at the actual income tax. So to give you an analogy, say you had a restaurant that only sold one thing on the menu, uh, well, guess what? All of its revenue comes from that one thing. What's the easy way to solve that problem? Put more things on the menu. This is not complicated. If you think Australia is over-reliant on income taxes, don't cut our low income taxes. Introduce the taxes that other countries have that we don't have. Have a wealth tax. That'll reduce our reliance on income tax. Uh, have a carbon tax. That'll reduce our reliance on income tax. This is simple stuff. But the people that are the people that flood the zone, the people that show up for the tax reform debate, they're not trying to fix Australia's economy. They're not trying to fix Australia's society. They're just trying to get themselves another tax cut. They sure are, and they they do pretty well for themselves, even in <laughs> the, in the stage three tax cut changes. Uh, you know, they they've taken away, I guess, the tax cut that they had, the very large tax cut, but they still get a tax cut. You know, the, the, it's been distributed more evenly, hasn't it? But, you know, the top end still do get some tax, quote-unquote, relief. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and so to be clear, Scott Morrison's stage three tax cuts were introduced in 20 or first proposed in 2018, back when Scott Morrison was Treasurer. Um, Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister at the time. But Scott Morrison cooked up uh, the Stage 3 tax cuts in 2018 and they were due to come in uh, and, they, and they will come in July this year. So he cooked them up six years in advance and they were very, very... So that basically they were small temporary tax cuts for low-income earners that kicked in in 2019, 2020. And there were really, really big, really unfair uh, tax cuts that kicked in six years later. Now, at the time, uh, Scott Morrison uh, was asked, well, how will we afford all these incredibly generous tax cuts for very high income earners? And he said, oh, well, continued economic growth, blah, 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 you know, trickle down, it'll they'll fund themselves. Now, when they were announced, th these were some of the biggest tax cuts in Australian history. Now, there's a really important lesson here. When, when conservatives want to give $200 billion to rich people, no one's worried about the budget deficit. When conservatives wanted to give $200 billion overwhelmingly to high-income earners, no one said, how can we afford... Well, no one, no one took mm. seriously the idea that we couldn't afford it. No one took seriously uh, the, 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 the idea that it would be bad for the budget deficit. So let's be clear. When we're spending money that rich people want spent, no one cares about the deficit, right? This is true for AUKUS, the submarines. No one cares. $300 billion for subs? Sure, no problem. $200 billion for stage three tax cuts? Sure, no problem. Can we increase unemployment benefits? Oh, gee, that's a bit expensive. Oh, have you thought about the budget deficit? What about future generations? Aren't you worried about burdening future generations. So this is it. This is why I care about tax reform. Mm. Tax reform's not a thing. It's just how democracies spend money and on who. Uh, so, yeah, the original stage three tax cuts were enormous and they were very, very, very heavily weighted towards high-income earners who were set to get a $9,000 tax cut on July 1. Now, Labor's come along 
and chop that in half. So high income earners are only going to get four thousand dollars now, only four grand. Uh, but that, and you know, that's 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 a big reduction. But mm. gee, four thousand dollar tax cut's still pretty sweet. But the good thing that Labor has done, and and I, I can't be equivocal about this, I think it's very good. They've actually given decent tax cuts of around a thousand dollars to millions of Australians who were going to get nothing under Scott Morrison's plan. So there has been a big redistribution uh, at the Australian Institute. We estimate around eighty eighty billion dollars has been taken from the top ten percent and given to low and middle income earners. An eighty billion dollar shift. Uh, in a in a $250 billion package is, is a lot. But to be clear, high-income earners are still getting uh, a $4,000 a year tax cut. Yeah, it's definitely not shabby. It, it's and not. It's a, it's a big tax cut. It's yeah. just, it just doesn't look big compared to the enormous tax cut that Scott Morrison had lined up for them. No, no. He was, yeah, delivering it to them on a platter. And it does... Um, paint a broader picture of tax policy and tax debate in Australia, which is that everyone has to be a winner or at least look like a winner, um, even though they weren't a winner under Scott Morrison's stage three tax cuts. But, you know, there needs to be um, winners across the board. No one's going to lose, especially when it comes to investments. And that also what was interesting about Labor's changes that they these changes wouldn't be inflationary. We had to check with the RBA governor to make sure that you know it wasn't going to tip inflation over or, or mess with their plans for reducing inflation. So there seems to be these kind of balancing acts that politicians are making. They're using making political choices in these tax reform debates or decisions. Um, what? Why is that the case? Because I mean, in other countries, like you were pointing out, Richard, do they have these discussions? Are they so? tied to everyone having to win and everyone having to um, negatively gear their properties. And, you know, like there seems to be some kind of special, I don't know, conditions in Australia that uh, have to be met for tax reform to be achieved. Uh, yeah, look, I, I mean, politics happens in every country. Every country's got their foibles. Uh, I, I talk a lot about the, the, the Scandinavian countries, uh, and, uh, you know, who, who collect a lot more tax and then do crazy things like have, you know, free childcare and free university education. It's really complicated. They collect more tax and they spend more money on nice things. We could have that system. Um, but if, uh, but I don't want to suggest that we should just, you know, emulate one other country and I don't want to suggest that other countries don't have uh, dem robust democratic and political fights about these things. But... The premise of your question is spot on. There is something uniquely absurd about economic debate in Australia. Uh, fish can't taste the water they swim in, and Australians rarely understand just how ridiculous uh, the, the kind of economic debates, in inverted commas, that we have are. Let me give you an example. The last US president to deliver a budget surplus, the last US president was Bill Clinton, and the last UK Prime Minister to deliver a budget surplus was uh, was Tony Blair. Um, and just to be crystal clear, no one in the world cares. No one cares. Donald Trump never delivered a surplus, never came close. Rishi Shunak will never deliver a surplus. No one cares. But in Australia, in Australia, we are absolutely obsessed with the idea that a successful government is one that runs a budget surplus. This is not based on economics. This is just... Uh, a political prop uh, and 
it's very hard to, for Australians to unlearn decades of being told if you're not running a budget surplus, you're not a competent economic manager. Well, if that's the case, virtually no prime minister or president in the world is a competent economic manager. It's just that no one else in the world cares and Australians are sort of uniquely obsessed with this stuff. So, yeah, in Australia, we use the, the, the simultaneous and contradictory goals of we must cut taxes and we must run a budget surplus. Think about that. If we really wanted a budget surplus, let's just go tax people a lot. No, 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 you can't do that, Richard. We have to have a surplus, but we have to have a low-tax surplus. So we've set up these two goals, cut taxes and deliver surplus, as the two main things that a good economic manager would do, cut taxes, deliver surplus. Well, the only way you can cut taxes and deliver a surplus is to be permanently cutting things like health spending, education spending, you name it. So, you know, Australians are set up to, uh, progressive Australians are set up to fail by this whole framework of what good economic management looks like. And to be clear, Trump's never delivered a surplus. Rishi Shunak has never delivered a surplus. No one else in the world cares, but you got progressive Australians, you got Labor governments that take surpluses more seriously than anyone in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, very curious. And one thing <clears throat> that made headlines when you were at the press club, Richard, giving a, um, a speech there, is another curious thing, something that ties into this whole discussion about the pie and what we're choosing to tax and not tax and the size of each kind of bit of the pie. You say that the federal government collects more from HEX help repayments than it does from the petroleum resource rent tax, which was designed to make sure that Australia receives its fair share of revenue from the gas industry. And this has come up in more recent days because we've seen Twiggy Forrest at the press club also talking about carbon pricing and fossil fuels and the fact that the whole world is moving into pricing carbon, but Australians aren't setting our own price. And he says that if we don't do it, um, global markets will. So, you know, how does Australia reset our priorities? Is this even a possibility in the political climate we're in? And what is the Australia Institute you know, thinking about this issue. <laughs> because what is the Australians doing to fix this? <laughs> no problem. Uh, well, look, what, what we do at the Australian Institute is we, we try to hold a mirror up so that Australians can see themselves clearly. Uh, it's a democracy. There's, there's 26 million of us. Uh, it's up to us to decide what our priorities are. <clears throat> it's up to us to decide what we want more of and what we want less of. It's up to us to decide who should pay more tax and who should pay less tax. So to be clear... These questions of who should pay tax, what should we subsidise, how do we want to structure our society, these questions are democratic questions. They have economic consequences, but ultimately they're democratic questions. And as an economist, I'm always trying to help kind of blur the lines between what's economic debate and what's democratic debate, because what, what, what those who love their tax cuts have done is convince nearly everyone that only economists should talk about the tax system, that only economists should talk about what we spend money on. And there's nothing in any economics textbook that says that's the case. So I said the Australian Institute's role, one of their roles is to hold a mirror up for society so we can see ourselves. Yeah, that's why I said at the press club a couple of weeks ago, uh, the government gets more from hex repayments 
than it does from the, the special petroleum resource rent tax. To, to be crystal clear, I didn't make that number up. That comes from the tax office. Right? This isn't Richard says we collect more money from HEX than we do from the petroleum resource rent tax. That's what the ATO tells us. Now, is that good or bad? I don't know. Depends on what you want. If you wanted a society that encouraged kids to get an education and discouraged fossil fuel production, you might think it's crazy that we collect more revenue from HECS than we do from the PRRT. But if you want a society that wants to discourage kids to go to uni and encourage fossil fuel exploration, then I guess we've got our settings just right. That's a democratic question. Everyone's entitled to have an opinion about that. But when you live in a country that collects more from HECS than it does from the petroleum resource rent tax, you need to own the fact that you live in a country that is discouraging education and encouraging fossil fuel production. And, you know, whether we want to own that or not, I don't know. I reckon most people in governments, state and federal, Labor and Liberal, successive governments, are just desperate to avoid a fight with the fossil fuels industry. So they kind of hide that simple truth. But that simple truth is available to anyone with the patience to read the budget papers. And so do you think, though, that now we're seeing more prominent figures like Andrew Twiggy Forrest blasting open the debate a bit and putting some perhaps fresh air into it by, by being one of those men in suits standing up on the podium and actually saying, hang on a sec, maybe we should price carbon. Do you think that that is bringing a different perspective into the debate? Like, absolutely. is that a positive? Absolutely. Oh, sorry to be clear. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so uh, so I spoke at the press club, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago and, and, and made the point about HEX and the PRIT. Um, uh, a week or so after that, uh, Professor Rod Sims and Professor Ross Garno uh, gave a speech at the press club saying, hey, we need a $100 uh, per tonne carbon levy tax, call it what you will. Uh, we need to do this. We need to do this soon. And then just yesterday, you had Twiggy Forrest, one of the world's richest men, uh, whose fortune primarily comes from the production and export of iron ore, uh, which needs a lot of fossil fuels to turn it into steel. Uh, you had Twiggy Forrest stand up and say, look, you can make steel uh, without fossil fuels. We will make steel without fossil fuels. And yeah, Twiggy Forrest 100% backed in uh, that call for a, a carbon levy as soon as possible. So I do think these things help reshape our conversation. And I do think reshaping our conversation eventually can get around to reshaping our budget priorities and our laws. So, uh, no, I think it's I think it's incredibly important uh, that people like Twiggy Forrest and, and people like Rod Sims are out there saying these things. But I also think it's important that people listening to this today uh, kind of take the confidence from uh, from hearing such uh, intellectual leadership, take that confidence, and then in, and then use that within their own democratic means. And by that I mean everything from writing a letter to the editor to ringing up your local member of parliament and saying, if you don't change your policy, I'm going to change my vote. And unless people actually engage in this so-called tax reform debate, I'd say Australia reform debate, uh, unless millions of Australians say, yeah, that is crap, how come we're getting more from our kids than we are from the coal and gas industry? 
until people take that anger and then act on that anger through democratic means, the status quo will be maintained. And, you know, that's the challenge. That's why that's why people who like things the way they are, who love things the way they are, uh, want to make tax reform seem boring. And more importantly, they want to make people think democracy doesn't work very well. They want to lower our expectations so that we don't demand better things from our MPs. I mean, it's so easy to be cynical. God, it's hard to be optimistic about change <laughs> because if you want to be optimistic about change in a democracy, you have to be optimistic that other people are going to follow you along. Uh, and, and yeah, all of the cynicism that people are so proud of, oh, politics is broken, democracy is broken, well, that's just a way of empowering the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, the status quo is hard to shift, but as you also say, the economics of tax reform is pretty easy and you write that if you set out in the right direction, you don't even have to make all the big decisions at the beginning and you can refine things as you go along. And I think that's what a lot of people feel daunted by is, oh, I don't have all the answers, I don't know how it all fits into the big you know, economic puzzle. But as you point out, even as a politician making decisions, you can refine, you can change, you can shape um, and you're not or shouldn't be at least locked in and set in stone and Labor's shift on stage three is an example of that. But we need to be a little bit more flexible and allow our politicians grace to change things. Absolutely. And look, you know, the Australian Institute, we spent literally five years saying that the stage three tax cuts were crap and either needed to be scrapped or needed to be radically altered. Uh, indeed, the day after, literally the day after Scott Morrison announced them, uh, my colleague Matt Grudenoff here at the Australia Institute uh, had, had the distributional modelling the day after saying, look, how much of this is going to go to the highest income earners? And for five years, we were saying, this is crazy. We've got to fix this. We've got to change this. And I, I must admit, for a long time there, it was, uh, it, it was lonely work because most people were of the view that, well, look, both major parties, and, and Labor initially opposed them, but they went to the 2022 election supporting them. Uh, you know, there were a lot of people saying, look, the Prime Minister said he's not going to change it uh, and the opposition leader isn't obviously going to change his mind, so why are you banging your head against the wrong wall? Why are you wasting the Australia Institute's, you know, finite uh, research effort focusing on this big problem when, you, let's face it, you know, pragmatism tells you nothing's going to change? Well, I guess my answer is... It, in a democracy, you have to pick the big fights. You have to uh, say what you think is true. And if we if we let the current prime minister and the current opposition leader define the the breadth of conversation that's allowed, then we'll never ever get anywhere. So uh, yeah, I mean, what's fascinating for me is that this week we'll see the Senate pass the stage three tax cuts with the coalition voting. Uh, for the for the radical change. So, you know, six weeks ago, it was crazy to suggest that we should change the stage three tax cuts in any way at all, let alone an enormously significant way. It would have been easy, even crazier for most people to think that if you did radically change them, that Peter Dutton would just wave it through Parliament and try and distract people with a fair campaign against asylum seekers to, to hide his shame. But here we are, there's going to be 
uh, bipartisan, potentially unanimous support in the parliament for changing the stage three tax cuts that just six weeks ago people thought were impossible to change. So if you can do that on stage three tax cuts, why wouldn't you believe you could do it with the petroleum resource rent tax? Why wouldn't you believe that we could get rid of 11 billion a year in fossil fuel subsidies? Why wouldn't you believe that we can do something to rein in uh, capital gains tax and negative gearing and, and help renters? Like being told that we're not, it's impossible to do things is, of course, the way to to maintain the status quo. And stage three, I hope, emboldens other people to think, yeah, maybe we should get behind people that are calling for change. Change isn't just possible. Change is inevitable. We're just haggling about which change and, mm. and, and how big and how fast. Mm. Richard, uh, to close out this conversation, I wanted to talk about an issue that is related to this in a way, and that is, uh, company profits and them being, I guess, quite high <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> and to to put it tactfully, um, but the, the AFR has probably been less tactful in recent times, um, writing that, quote, it's a dangerous time to be a big business making a large profit <laughs> in Australia. That's a direct quote from the AFR. Um, I was interested when I was watching the Four Corners piece on supermarkets and profits and the lack of competition in that market or sector um, because the the CEOs there were basically talking about profit like it had to keep growing, that it couldn't stay the same, it couldn't slightly decline, we had to keep growing company profits. And I was wondering, why do we have to keep growing company profits? I mean, obviously there are stakeholders and shareholders and, you know, it's all, and we want to give them dividends and, and that kind of thing. But why is there this assumption that we have to have endless growth of company profits in Australia and it wouldn't be acceptable to have it, you know, stay the same or be slightly less? Would that be a bad thing, Richard? Uh, no, it, it, to be crystal clear, if we lowered the profits of Coles and Woolworths, then we could have cheaper groceries. If we lowered the profits of the electricity retailers, we could have cheaper electricity. If we lowered the profits of Qantas and Virgin, we could have cheaper flights. Like, I mean, it's just... How complicated is this? Not at all. But again, just like we've been told there's this complicated tax debate and you kids should just sit down and butt out unless you want to dedicate your life to it, uh, the same is true with the debate about profits and, and competition policy in Australia. Uh, so, look, the Australia Institute two years ago said that profit growth was a key driver of inflation, two years ago. And when we said this, we were first ignored and then laughed at and then attacked and then proved completely right. Uh, and again, those pinko lefties at the OECD, led by Matthias Cormann, actually at the OECD, they put out research almost identical to our own, drawing the same conclusion that profits were playing a big role in driving inflation in Australia. But yes, yeah, still you've got the AFR and a whole bunch of uh, sort of, uh, you know, pro pro-business boosters just saying, no, 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 you've completely misunderstood. Uh, we're not making record profits and profits uh, to the extent they are record are really just an important way to blah, 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 econobabble nonsense. I don't even know. So Coles and Woolworths make much higher rates of profit than any other supermarkets in the OECD. Full stop, they do. Somehow Walmart exists and somehow Tesco exists 
and somehow other countries can get groceries into people's pockets or into people's uh, shopping bags uh, with lower profits than they are in Australia. Tesco does exist. Walmart does exist. But, yeah, in Australia, oh, my God, you, what do you mean that we're making uh, much higher rates of profit than similar businesses overseas? You can't possibly expect us to make lower profit. Uh, so, again, it's just like saying we, we have to cut taxes. There is no alternative. Saying we have to make even greater profits. There is no alternative. Uh, that's just a way to silence a debate about alternatives. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah, and one other really important point you made uh, in a, in Senate evidence recently was to not only point out that the Australia Institute was right, um, but also that when you have advice or boards that are not diverse in terms of the background and experience that they're providing or have, then you're going to get a certain strategy or a certain view. And that was also the point you were making about the Reserve Bank Board, is that it's comprised of largely business leaders who are from the property sector, the retail sector, superannuation industry, but they're not from unions. They're not representing other parts of the country. So, I mean, even in that discussion about inflation and what the strategy should be in a monetary sense, you know, if you don't have um, the right inputs and the right advice that's diverse, are you going to get the right outcomes? We're going to get the right outcomes for the people making the decisions. I mean, yeah. let, let's face it. If 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 I was on the if I if someone suggested I go on the RBA board, they'd say, "Oh, you can't go on, Richard. You're not independent." Now I don't know what that means, but apparently, if I was running a supermarket, that'd be fine. Or if I was a property developer, that'd be fine. Or if I was running, like you know. Australia is just this bizarre place where we think we can only get good advice about how to manage the economy from business people who've got a stake in running the economy in a particular way that's good for them. And then, and the beautiful thing is, you know, that these business leaders are so good at dressing up their self-interest as national interest. Or if you cut taxes, that'd be good for me. And you cut wages, which would be good for me. Uh, uh, then my company would help you. So I, I just want to help you. But step one, you help me. So I, I don't mind that there's people with uh, from with a business background on the RBA board. I mind that at the moment it would be anathema to have. Uh, a, a union person on the board or a representative of low-income consumers or, or God forbid, a, an economist who uh, has strong views about the past performance of the RBA. So, yeah, who we put on these boards obviously matters. And, yeah, let's be clear, the, the same RBA that said it's not profits causing inflation had a few board mem members on there who were trying to increase their profits at the time. Uh, now, you can't blame them for doing that, but you can blame a government for putting such narrow advice on such an important board. Absolutely. Well, Richard, we've covered so much ground and I'm very grateful to you for debunking all of that econobabble <laughs> for us because it's a minefield. Um, and people can check out your essay in the monthly called Tax to Grind, which goes into even more depth um, on all of these issues. But you know, puts it in ways that I can't even do. And that's why we love having you on the show, Richard. Um, so thank you so much for your time today and for your 
advocacy in kind of getting a different perspective out there that is still, you know, based, as you point out, in fact, it's not Richard's facts. They're all the facts out there from the internet, from the ATO, from the OECD. These are things that everyone has access to, but are we utilising them in a way that furthers our democracy and makes sure that we're aware of the choices we have to make? Uh, so, yeah, I appreciate your time and for all the Australia Institute's efforts and congratulations on your 30th anniversary. Oh, thank you. And uh, thanks, Amy, for, for creating such a great forum for people to talk about these things. Always happy to come on. And if people want to follow me or the Institute on Twitter or all the other social media, we can we can load you up with good facts whenever you need. Uh, and as someone smarter than me once said, the problem with facts is they have a well-known left-wing bias. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks, Amy. Um, I've been chatting with Dr Richard Dennis, Executive Director of the Australia Institute, and we've just been talking about his piece in the monthly, Tax to Grind, uh, which is all about tax reform and the fact that it is a democratic choice and a democratic debate. Um, we shouldn't be burdened by the economics of it, although that is important, as Richard points out, but the economics do seem to have a bit of a left-wing bias, don't they? And the facts. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and it is my absolute pleasure and honour, I should say, to welcome onto this program a first-time guest to the show, Andrew Quilty. Andrew has produced two amazing books, the first of which was called August in Kabul, America's Last Days in Afghanistan, which was released in 2022 through Melbourne University Publishing. And then there's this beautiful, very large hardback book that I've got with me right now, and it's called This is Afghanistan 2014 to 2021. It's been published in a kind of limited edition run through Maigunya Press, which is an imprint of Melbourne University Publishing. It is a very, very special book for so many reasons, not just because it's aesthetically beautiful and so wonderful to flick through and read, but it's also got a gravitas in terms of the content and, of course, the person behind it, Andrew Quilty. For those who aren't familiar with Andrew's work, and I know that many people would be, whether they were aware of it or not, because they would have no doubt seen his photographs in many places, Andrew is an award-winning photojournalist and he has produced this book as a visual record of his nine years in a war-ravaged country, Afghanistan. He was one of a small number of journalists who were in Kabul to witness the withdrawal of the military forces from Afghanistan. And I know that we all remember that moment, or I certainly do, watching it from afar on the news. We'll get into some of those moments which feature in this book, but we'll also go back to the start of Andrew's time in Afghanistan. So I welcome Andrew and his many Walkley Awards onto the show. Hi there, Andrew, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Amy. You have quite a substantial bio, and I know we were saying off air you were feeling unproductive, but I think maybe is that why you're so successful and have achieved so much, is that are you a restless soul? Oh, um, possibly. I have felt 
Well, yes, you're you're right. I, I I did say that I had felt a little unproductive in the last um little while, and yeah, maybe that has something to do with having been a little more productive in the years that we'll probably talk about today. There's a lot of amazing work here, and no doubt. I'm guessing as a photographer, there are a lot of shots that didn't make it into this book and that no doubt didn't even get seen by anyone other than yourself. So there's a lot of work that must get produced over there. Yeah, actually, I um, the, the first step in what was quite a long process of putting the book, This Is Afghanistan, together was to go through all of the photos I took in Afghanistan over the years and many of which I'd never seen before. I'd, I'd taken and then, um, you know, dumped to a hard drive to be considered um, many years later and I, I think in the end it was about 350,000 photos that I that I made my way through to um, which eventually got um, whittled down to about 180 for the book. That's a that's a big hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> a big bundle a of hard drives. Yeah yeah and a lot of clicking. Um, <laughs> I'm really really excited to talk about these photographs and I want to get into that but I also want to talk about the fact that there's a lot of helpful text in the book not lots as in I guess quantity but in terms of providing context and richness to some of the backstories to these photos and I know they stand alone and I certainly don't think you need to have that but to me it added a whole nother dimension to hear from you at the start of each year and get that background of you know what was happening geopolitically but then also bringing in the human stories that you have in these photographs what was your thinking behind that because I know perhaps some photojournalists may shy away from the written word. You have certainly, you know, engaged in it, but, you know, how do you work with that when you're putting together a book that's focused on photographs, but obviously text is still a core component? It was really Afghanistan that made me realise the limitations of photography. And that's mostly because I found that everything I pointed my camera at in Afghanistan was imbued with so much context that couldn't be captured within the frames of, of, of a photograph and which needed to be added in some way, most often for me in the form of the written word. And so I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I, I disagree with you when you said that you don't think it's absolutely necessary to have the words accompany the, the images, but for me just to, to fully flesh out the issues that the individual photographs point to a, a very specific instance of, it's really only through words, at least in the medium of the print media, that you can fully expand on the on the larger issues. Mm. I'm glad that you, you're disagreeing with me because I'm coming at that point from an art historical background. So I think some of the images, when I looked at them, I desperately wanted to know the context of it, but I also just appreciated the image for its own composition and aesthetic quality and content or themes that are quite universal in some ways, but as you say, are still very specific to that person on that day in that set of circumstances. So obviously they're, they're both two different things, I guess, but mm. I still really appreciate a lot of these photographs for just looking at them and having that first experience of not knowing you mm. know, what's yeah, behind it. That's a really interesting way of putting it. And and maybe there's something in that, that a successful photograph is one that draws you in by visual means. And then 
I suppose, bolsters the the context that is not immediately visible in the image, which which you you know need to go searching for, or in this mm. instance, um, you know, read more in the, in the in the caption or the story. Yeah, it sets you off on a path. Hmm. Like, I wonder if you've had this very often, but one of the photographs I'm thinking of that possibly exemplifies this for me is one from April 2015 in Helmand province with Gul Ahmad, who's an infant boy, as you have written, who was suffering from acute malnutrition. And he had this veil, a scarf that his mother had put across his face and his body. You know, you could see the whites of his eyes just looking through. But initially when I looked I only saw the veil and then I saw the boy underneath the veil and that was just, you know, it had so many layers, not just physical layers, but perceptual layers and contextual layers. And it just was a really interesting image to be struck by, I guess, for mm. me. Yeah, that, that's one of those images that is full of kind of contradictions and is very, um, it's difficult to, or I suppose it can be difficult to, reconcile what might be an initial response to the the aesthetic qualities of the of the image mm. with what it is actually showing which is this you know acutely malnourished boy who, who um, was lying under this this um, scarf that his mother had placed across him to keep the keep the flies off him in this very hot uh, hospital ward yeah yeah it's this double page which I'm glad it is like you know it's got that large quality to it and it's like as you say I think once you realize that it doesn't just have some kind of formal aesthetic quality that you almost start judging yourself for having appreciated it because that's yeah. how I felt yeah very much very much yeah. so actually um you know you you said something similar in relation to the book as a whole in your introduction and it evokes some sort of conflicts in me. It's like, you know, should a a book that is full of such confronting imagery and themes, you know, even be in such sort of beautiful packaging, you know, it's, um yeah, it's, it's, it's full of ethical dilemmas, the, mm. the whole process. Yeah, no doubt as a photographer, there's also moments where you are looking through a lens, but there is this layer of voyeurism that is essential to photography and a whole range of other photographic mediums. How are you confronted by it when you're out taking photographs and sometimes potentially a very violent scenes, whether it's just happened or happened a week ago or even later, you know, how do you approach it? I think one way that me and the photographers whom I admire and look up to and, and whose methods of work I try to mimic to an extent. One way that we avoid that voyeuristic perspective is mm. is by typically using a, a relatively wide angled lens, which means you can't stand back and observe these scenes from afar where you're detached from what's going on. You really have to be um, in the scene, which means either putting yourself in the same um, level of danger as those you're photographing or I guess it forces you to confront the same moral it forces you to be a part of the the scene in a way that makes um, avoiding any moral conflict much harder if that makes mm. sense 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you, you you really really have to be a part of what you're photographing, and of course, you know you can dive into that and make very valid assessments. For, for instance, just me knowing that I have a an Australian passport, and while I might be in a scene that is either dangerous or um, morally fraught, while the people I'm photographing that's their life, and they and they are living there, they have no choice to leave. I can um, at any moment say, okay, I've had enough. Um, this is too dangerous or I don't feel comfortable and I'm leaving. And, um, you know, that, that those are the, they are also um, the, the moral conundrums and the ethical conundrums that me and my, my colleagues are confronted by and will probably continue to be maybe haunted by in the future. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard for me to get my head around and I haven't been there a lot of journalists, I'm making generalizations here, but a lot of them will say, I'm impartial or I strive to be objective. And we've just kind of been picking up on this thing of, you know, you really have to be part of it when you're on the ground with your camera. So there's that high minded, I guess, view of journalism as this font of truth and objectivity. But then you've got here something different, but I think it's still capturing a deep truth. I wonder what you see the role of subjectivity being and and knowing your subjects as well you obviously have a lot of friends in afghanistan you've you've made a lot of friends how do you perceive those relationships when you're photographing people well i mean it wasn't that often that i was actually photographing my friends one instance where that did begin to happen was towards the end of my my stint in afghanistan when the Taliban started encroaching on on Kabul where I lived and where um, the majority of my friends and and colleagues also lived. And when those friends and colleagues started to become the people that I was turning to, to photograph or to interview, because they were all of a sudden the ones who were under this, this very real threat. Whereas up until that point, well, yes, the the war did affect Kabul, and and there were very regular, extreme, but isolated instances of violence. The war, the gun battles, and the front lines, and the um, the artillery, and the the mortars and the machine guns, that more traditional war, I suppose, was being fought mostly out in the in the rural regional areas. Mm. And so when when that started to close in on on Kabul, yeah, it, w- it was my friends and and colleagues and and you know even me who who were being more impacted. And that was when I I realised it was going to be much more difficult for me to be impartial because it was, you know, it was my friends who were all of a sudden having to consider fleeing the country. Um, I even had to consider mm. fleeing the country, and yeah, that made it a lot more difficult to view the Taliban objectively. It was very difficult not to have a lot more sympathy for those within Kabul who didn't want to be there anymore or for whom it was too dangerous to be there. Whereas outside of Kabul, where I would often go to work, the people I was I was speaking to and photographing were, I could go there, I could photograph the war and then come back to Kabul and, and it, the war stayed out there. Mm. Well, when we're at that point at the end, that moment where the Taliban's, you know, coming in and there's this mad rush to evacuate over a couple of weeks. 
I feel like when I was watching this on the news and also seeing the commentary from the federal government, there was criticism about the fact that these visas and arrangements for people who had interpreted for the Australian military, for others who had facilitated relations between different people, the locals in Afghanistan that have put themselves at great risk now with the Taliban returning, you know, there was all this criticism of, of the Australian government, you haven't done enough to look after them, to get them out, to expedite the process, the visas. And then it just kind of died out, I, I feel like, in terms of the, the critiques and the ongoing follow-up. And no doubt there were some people out there following up, but I wonder, you know, what truly did happen? You know, are there still people who have been left behind that were supporting, for example, Australian military forces who were fearful, are fearful, have been affected or are affected still by having that relationship and you know, now being potentially compromised or, or under threat in this new regime, the, the, the old guard Taliban that's back? I'm, I'm sure there still are Afghans in Afghanistan who have very legitimate cause for resettlement in Australia. I know that when Australia opened up applications for emergency resettlement for Afghans. There was a, a huge number of applications, I think over 200,000. And um, all those applications are being very, very slowly sorted through and, and assessed. And, and, you know, a small percentage of them are resulting in visas being granted. But, um, you know, that's a, that's a um, it's all dependent on, on policy, you know, what mm. uh, and the terms of the visa criteria and the vast majority of those applicants will most likely not be granted visas. I'm certainly aware of a number of, of people and, and, you know, now friends who, who don't really fit into any of the very specific criteria that are required for these visas to be granted or, or for asylum to be granted. And it's these people who are having great difficulty, you know, people who were soldiers with the Afghan National Army, but who didn't necessarily have any close links with the US government or the Australian government or any of the others, which is often what is the difference between someone like this person I'm, I'm thinking of being granted asylum and not. So, yeah, I mean, there are, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that just fall in these gaps and who are just as likely, if not more likely, to be under you know, really serious threat and, you know, who are being sought by the, by the Taliban. Many of them are in neighbouring countries, Iran or, or Pakistan, as a temporary measure. But those, th those options are, are not sustainable and are fraught with a whole raft of, of, of other problems. Mm. When I was looking at some of these photographs, one that struck me that, I don't know, it stands out for many reasons, some very obvious reasons that we're in a very lavish interior environment, but also that, I don't know, it almost looks like a tableau or a painting in a way, in the way that the, the people are sitting and talking and gesturing. I'm talking about a photograph which depicts uh, US General John Campbell, Dr. Abdullah Abdullah and President Ashraf Ghani, which you write was at a dinner marking John Campbell's departure from Afghanistan. And that photo to me is just so striking. 
obviously because it's not depicting a war-ravaged or war-torn scene, it's not depicting the average Afghani. It makes you think, here are these people comfortable in this room and they're eating this lovely dinner and we've just seen this malnourished child who is covered by this mother's scarf and then here they are kind of separated from a totally different reality so yeah that was the other thing that jolted me so it feels like there's just this massive disconnect or departure from all of the other photographs we see in the lead up to this one that you just kind of i don't know get shocked into a different state i wonder if you could reflect on how that photo came to be and the composition of it and some of those aesthetics but also i guess how you think it says something unique Mm, it, it's funny. It's that's one photo that often gets commented on. I think I think probably because of its unexpectedness of the mm-hmm. the scene. I think you know it's probably no different to almost any other country where you have the the, the powerful and the elite living in a on a different stratosphere to to the average citizen. The difference in Afghanistan is obviously that the gap between the two is probably much greater, but. Um, yeah, how did I end up there? I I had um I'd been commissioned to photograph for a story about General John Campbell, and we had been the journalist and I had been granted permission to to shadow him for about a week, and that involved wow. a lot of flying around in helicopters and planes all over the country, visiting his soldiers and and Afghan soldiers and and um, culminated at the end of the week in this this lavish farewell dinner and then the following day a, um, a farewell ceremony with you know lots of dignitaries and you know in, in this case the president and the and essentially his his vice president and you know it, it goes to show how interconnected th- those two institutions were the US military and the and the Afghan Republican government and, and how, reliant they each were on one another um certainly the the afghan government at that time was extremely reliant on the on the u.s military and their their not only their military might and, and prowess and all their you know technical capacity but also their support that they offered their afghan counterparts with training and equipment and logistical support uh, and so on which as that support started to wane, the, the cracks started to show in the in the Afghan uh, security forces' ability to maintain security on their own. And mm. once it was almost all gone in those, those final days, what, what a lot of people probably forget is that um, August in 2021 is, is remembered now as the month that the Taliban returned to power less recall is the fact that it was also the last month of the US military's withdrawal from the country. And it just so happened that they, I mean, it, it wasn't mm. a coincidence. It was, um, there are many reasons that it, that it did end up coinciding on the, on the calendar, but, um, yeah, it coincided did when, you know, the two, as the Americans were making their final departure from the airport, the, the Taliban was slowly, you know, encroaching mm. on it, almost, almost filling the the void that the Americans were leaving, and and ended up arriving early, really, because the Afghan government and the security forces weren't capable of filling that that void. Yeah, 
I do remember that now that you say it had to be sped up, I guess, the Americans mm. going, oh, gosh, we really have to leave now. <laughs> like, yeah, well, well, it was, yeah, it wasn't um, initially, you know, they were going to, they were planning a, a very sort of orderly withdrawal and, mm. you know, that would be, you know, slowly taking their, you know, their infrastructure apart and, and, and flying it out. And then, yeah, just the, 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 the quicker they did it, the quicker the Taliban started filling that void. And in the end, there was it was a real race to the door. And um, it was actually, I mean, the, the Americans were actually very lucky that the Taliban kind of went easy on them at the end. You know, the mm -hmm. Americans were so vulnerable. They were, I mean, they were, in the end, they were surrounded in this airport by the Taliban. I mean, had the Taliban wanted to, they could have, you know, taken out, a lot of revenge for the past 20 years and the the losses that they had incurred at the time but um i guess yeah in the end through diplomacy and and pragmatism they essentially worked with the americans to facilitate that withdrawal in i should say a um a very limited um, period of time after which they would they said they would no longer cooperate yeah yeah and just looking at some of the photos right at the end of the book which do capture this time period it's really interesting to see because some of them are i don't know you can feel the rush in the photo obviously there's like some that the headlights that are shining on a dark population and you can kind of feel the vibration and the movement of the night and the big crowds of people and then there are other ones that for anyone who actually has the book at home it's 336 um, is the page I'm talking about, but there's this kind of desolate looking scene with mountains in the background and power lines and and then a solitary military looking plane in the middle of the shot. And then all of these individuals either sitting on the dirt or standing up in different kind of spaces. But there's this kind of stillness or static quality to that image. You know, there's so many really interesting moments of dynamism and different levels of dynamics that you're capturing in these photographs of a time that obviously, as you've just been saying, was full of so much upheaval and unpredictability. Mm -hmm. Could you reflect on that? Because you've talked about a bit about your time with your friends and reflecting on how that, you know, suddenly you're in the middle of it all with them. You know, how does this play into your photographs and your the instincts you've got to take these shots at the end? They do feel like they have a different quality to some of the more early ones, to me at least, you know, because mm. there is this almost feeling like you are embedded within a moment, a very particular time. Mm. That's interesting. I hadn't, um, I hadn't thought of that before. I, um, look, I mean, that, that period was vastly more emotionally charged than any of the, the time I'd spent in Afghanistan before. Mostly, I think, because for the first time, as I already said, um, you know, it, w it was sort of directly affecting me and, and my friends and colleagues. So the distance that I'd always been able to put between myself and, and you know, what were often very traumatic events and, and stories was no longer there. So, yeah, I mean, if that does come through in the photos, then that's, that's something that photograph that you're talking about was um it's interesting that that um the stillness is is what um you take away from it because mm -hmm. it was it was probably seconds after i i took that photograph that i was bundled up by 
a group of men who had sort of come out of that crowd and who had obviously seen me photographing. I, I was trying to be quite surreptitious at the time because it was a very uh, sensitive area. I was right near a, one of the several gates to the airport. And this particular gate was being controlled and secured by the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, mm. and an Afghan militia that they had control over. And um, there was a lot of, you know, obviously you can't hear this in the photograph. There was a lot of yeah. um, gunfire and a lot of noise and a lot of tension, um, it, again, in the, in the periphery of, of that photograph. And, yeah, some of these men had obviously seen me photographing and were suspicious of me, which is mm. entirely reasonable. And, yeah, they bundled me up and stripped my camera off me and my bag and took me over to where the CIA and um, and some of their militia members were and, and hand, handed me over to them. And fortunately, it was all sorted out, but it was um, I was pretty pretty worried there for a minute. And, um, yeah, that, that whatever stillness is apparent in that photograph didn't, didn't um, last long in my... <laughs> well, you can have stillness and hold a sense of tension, can't you? But then obviously have the, the following chaos. It really is a really interesting image. It's all subjective, isn't it? How people take and receive photographs. And that's another thing, you know, when you're putting a book out into the world, everyone's going to have different responses to some of what you're putting out. You know, mm -hmm. you don't have control anymore over yeah. it. You can put your words there and you can put your photographs out there, but then it's out there. Mm. What are some of those other responses that you've had? Are there any that have particularly surprised you or or intrigued you or changed your mind about any of your own photographs? Mm. Yeah, I mean, like everything in the world, we we all come to it with different experiences and the most evocative responses to the book for me have come from Afghans and I've always um, been very circumspect and reluctant showing the book to Afghans, um, particularly those who, some of them to whom I've, I've shown it in Australia are in Australia because they, they left at that time for, for the reasons that we've been talking about. And so it's to see the, the images of um, what led up to the period that, that, that saw them leave themselves is um oh you know it's it's um it's pretty heartbreaking because while you know you and I might be able to look back and reflect on photographs of family albums from from our childhood and reflect on them fondly mm -hmm. if sentimentally the, the Afghans that I'm referring to who are looking at them have been forced to leave the lives that as depicted in the book um, or, the, or the, the city or the country um, as they're depicted in the book and they don't know whether they'll ever be able to go back so the, the you know memory for them is is a is a burden in in um, many ways and then of course seeing the 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 more the, the photographs later in the book um, from that time where everyone was trying to get out or a lot of people were trying to get out mm you know, obviously traumatic for, for very you know, obvious reasons that um, bringing up that, that period, um, you know, probably one of the most traumatic periods of their lives. And um, so, yeah, it's, um, I, I don't think I've shown the book to an Afghan who hasn't first cried and then closed the book mm. before getting very far into it. 
So it's um, and some I know have um, said, you know, it's it's sitting on the coffee table, but I can't look at it yet. And um, you know, there will there will come a time. Yeah, it's understandable. Mm. Like that's a very human response. Mm. It's hard enough for someone who has that distance, as you say, and that privilege mm-hmm. to be in Australia and to mm. see these images. So yeah, I can't really imagine it. It does take me to a photograph which I had to ask you about because I think it's probably one of the ones that affected me the most and I'm not sure whether this is the same for others who've spoken to you. And it is about that thing, about context as well. When you you first see this image, and it is one of the earlier ones as well from October 2015 in Kunduz province, and it's a photograph of a patient, a 43-year-old man and father of four, Benazar Muhammad Nazar, he's lying out on a an operating table in this room and there's an old air conditioner on the wall and there's looks like there's blood stains on the wall there and he's tied down really on this operating table and there's something covering his head and this kind of board, a very small square board covering part of his body the most sensitive parts, but then there's his limbs sitting out. Mm. And I don't know, there's dust and debris and fallen windows. And then you just see this man or this person and you just go, wow, how is he still there? Why was he left there? And what happened to him? And how could this be that he's in a hospital and this is what happens? And I know it's a very naive thing now to say when we're looking at Gaza and the number of hospitals that have been attacked and bombed because this was all happening in Afghanistan and other places in the Middle East. But I mean, it just, it really gets you in the stomach for me at least. And I wonder how you experienced that because you do provide some of the context in your writing on this particular family and there are other images of his daughter and wife as well so you see the aftermath of his death and their mourning his passing a month later as well in another photograph what was your experience as a photographer of that particular scene because that was a week after he had passed away it was an american gunship who had mistakenly thought it was a, a Taliban command center. Mm. It's a long story that led up to, to me taking that photograph. But at the end of September 2015, I was in Kabul and I was out at dinner with some friends and we started hearing that the Taliban were attacking this city, the city of Kunduz, a, a city in northern Afghanistan. And pretty soon it became apparent that they had taken control of the city. And this was the first uh, major Afghan city that the Taliban had taken control of in 15 years at that point, uh, since the beginning of the war. It was a significant moment in the war and it, it signaled a, a pretty significant changing of, of the, the dynamics of the war. And so I pretty quickly started to make inquiries about trying to get to Kunduz to try and cover what was clearly going to be be a, a military operation to try and retake the city from the Taliban. And while I was trying to get access with the Afghan National Army to get to embed with them and to join their soldiers in, on this operation, the American forces who were involved in that operation, as you mentioned, bombed this hospital, which they thought had been overrun by the Taliban. And um, they completely destroyed the hospital and um, it was 
evident that um, several dozen people had been killed and injured, but not a lot else was known because um, there was very little access to the area. The fighting in the city was still going on. And, and so my efforts to get to Kunduz, the city, narrowed a little bit and I started focusing on getting to that very hospital. So getting to the city took several days of um, commercial airlines and then waiting in a military base, uh, waiting on the helicopter landing zone of a, a military base as helicopters came and went and came and went and didn't have uh, enough room to take me and a couple of colleagues. Eventually, we were allowed onto a helicopter that was headed for Kunduz and it was so packed that um, there were no seats left and I ended up sitting on the a, a coffin that was loaded with a, the dead body of, a, of an Afghan soldier. And um, and we flew to Kunduz, to a major military base there, and basically spent the next five days pretty much cordoned off in this military base because the Afghan soldiers there didn't want to let us out and be responsible for the, the risk that would be required to you know, get either into the city or um, or to the hospital. We eventually managed to get out of the base with a, a sympathetic um, Afghan um, National Army captain who let us come with him one day and we sort of slipped our public affairs official who, who had been assigned to keep, keep watch of us. We slipped him and we, um, and we got out of the base and then we got on the edge of the city where these soldiers were part of a, a, a mission to corral some of the remaining Taliban fighters. And, and it was at that point that I kind of slipped this group of soldiers that we were with and coordinating with people from Doctors Without Borders who ran the hospital. I managed to get into the city and, um, and into the hospital, which no one aside from the people who survived and left the hospital about a week earlier had been inside up to that point. So no one really knew what was left and in what state the hospital was in. And so, yeah, I, I got inside the hospital and it was, um, you know, it was still, there were still um, unexploded shells that had been fired from the, the gunship that were lying around. There were several dead bodies still in the, in the hallways and on beds and on the ground in the wards. Um, the roof was caving in everywhere. The vast majority of the hospital had been, you know, burnt beyond recognition. And um, just before I was about to leave, because the, the light was fading and I wanted to get out of the city before um, it was dark and, and back to the military base because nighttime brings a whole other raft of, of risks in a situation like that. So um, I, was, mm. I was working as quickly as I possibly could. And just before I was about to leave, I, I saw this, a set of those um, swinging doors that you know from any hospital around the world and um, a sign above it that said operating theatres and it didn't look that badly damaged. So I sort of thought twice about going in there, mm. but I, in the end, I pushed through the doors and looked in one operating theatre and took a few photos. There was some damage, but it, um, not like the rest of the hospital. Then I moved to another operating theatre, which was more badly damaged, but it hadn't been burnt like the, the rest of the hospital that I'd seen to that point. And as my eyes adjusted to the light, I could see that there was a body on the operating table that was still, you know, attached by the wrists and ankles to the, to that, um, you know, almost crucifix like operating mm. table. And there was still a, 
um, a, a cloth that was draped over his torso. So I suppose it's if a um, if a patient regains consciousness during the operation, they don't see the operation that's taking place, and he still had the um, I think it's called an X fix, like a, a steel stainless steel skeleton that sets the bone back in place that that was being operated on and um yeah and i i i quickly sort of clocked that this was a quite a significant scene and mm. it was very you know emblematic of a of a, a a scene that had played out many times in afghanistan where americans had mistakenly bombed a, a target that they shouldn't have um mm. you know many times where weddings were were bombed um where celebratory gunfire had been mistaken for aggressive gunfire and um and so i stayed in that operating theater for a few minutes being very still being very conscious at the time moving around and, and photographing from several angles and 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 then you know eventually making my way out of the hospital and and back to where i'd left these soldiers and and then back to the base for the night and and flew back to kabul in the morning and it was in the weeks following that that um discussions between my editors and i and, and even msf who were very concerned about how a photograph like this might be perceived by the afghan public who they understandably believed might be upset with MSF for having allowed a the dead body of an Afghan of a Muslim man to not be buried for that long after a after a death, and um, eventually we decided not to run the photograph. I was working for an American outlet called Foreign Policy, and we decided not to publish that photograph until we found out more about the man depicted in it and his family and and why he was there and um and and you know about his life leading up to that point and and so about a month later we eventually tracked down the family and spoke to them and they felt very strongly that they wanted this photograph to be published they knew that it was very unlikely that they would receive any kind of justice and so i think that they thought that acknowledgement of what had happened to them and to their husband would be some Know, vindication or at least an acknowledgement of what had happened which so many afghans who had suffered the same fate did not receive in the description that you have about his backstory you know the way that he got injured it just seems so it could have happened to anyone what mm. happened to him you know mm. that he was checking he was a security guard checking on a jewelry store that he worked at to make sure that it was obviously secure and he got shot in the thigh and mm. here he is in an operating room and mm. this is what happens mm. yeah i mean the idea that in international law you're not meant to target a hospital a healthcare mm. facility and the word mistaken or yeah. mistakenly you know it gets used so liberally and i think misused mm. there's a lot of intelligence mm. <laughs> and monitoring yeah. and high-tech you know sources mm. and it's medicine sans frontier you know who had been in contact several times with the american military to ensure that they were aware that the hospital was still functioning they had provided the coordinates of the hospital they'd put a big flag on the roof with their emblem and yeah it still wasn't enough and i, I think the the difference is that you know whether or not it, it was a legitimate mistake or not 
the problem is when you're fighting a war, mistakes have such huge consequences, you know, in comparison to if you or I make a mistake, we, we move on in our work. Usually we, we will hopefully yeah. move on, but, um, but yeah, the consequences are so, so great. And yeah, as you said, and we're seeing that in Gaza at the moment and mm-hmm. the, what what's happening in, in Gaza at the moment is, is like what happened in Kunduz just a hundred times over. Yeah. You know, it feels like that. Arguably more punitive. That it doesn't feel like it's a mistake. They're saying, well, actually, no, we think that they're in the basement, so we're going to use snipers and shoot through the windows. Mm. Yeah. You say that in total 42 people were killed in that attack and 37 were injured, so obviously it's going to have huge repercussions for at least 80 of the you know people and their families and the people they knew. As you say, it happened over and over again in so many different circumstances. Just to close out the conversation, because I feel that there's so many other, I guess, aspects of life that I haven't got to ask and I I won't get to ask, but there are a couple of threads or points that are a bit different in this book that I just wanted to touch on. Part of the striking contrast we were talking about before about, you know, the everyday lives of Afghanis, and there's obviously a lot of culturally specific circumstances, but also economically specific circumstances, and you, you kind of raise or draw in some of the issues around opium and poppy crops and people needing to get by. And we hear that, we heard that in some of the accusations around war crimes is that, you know, people were tending to their fields of of poppy crops. And, you know, like these are things that are kind of essential to, to the economy of Afghanistan in many ways. There are kind of moments of reflection when I was looking through your photographs thinking how we here would go, oh, drugs, you know, Mm-hmm. these are really bad um you know but that's at our lens i guess as a you know mm-hmm. in a western country where we're not growing well some people might be growing poppy crops mm-hmm. but probably legally and you know under a set of regulations in afghanistan this is kind of a, a part of life and it, you know there is a political element to it with the taliban for example but could you tell us a little bit about how the everyday plays into your photographs in that sense that might feel quite alien from us it's not our everyday mm-hmm. but for them, you know, this is something that it's not benign. As you show, there are people who are severely addicted and need to go cold turkey and look really mm-hmm. affected by it. But there's also a kind of deep necessity to um, yeah. survive and live for some people. Yeah, yeah. The opium industry is, I mean, it employed probably millions of Afghans or, or millions of Afghans at least relied on the opium crop which, yeah, as you said, it, it does have immediate impacts in Afghanistan where there's a very high rate of addiction, but it's also the source of income for at least livelihood of millions of Afghans. So it's not seen as a, I mean, the, the illicit nature of it is, you know, it's something that the governments or those who are in control impose on a, on a crop that, you know, grows very, very well in Afghanistan. And to an extent thrives on insecurity because it's usually in times of insecurity that people are, you know, ironically able to get away with growing it. Doubly ironic is the fact that the Taliban, now that they're in power, have, are actually cracking down on the production of opium and, and have, have banned the cultivation of it. And there's probably 95%, it's some, something like that, less opium being produced now 
than at the time the American military were in the um, controlling the international forces there and the, and the Republican government was in charge. The reason the Taliban don't see um, hypocrisy in that is that they allowed it to be uh, cultivated during the war because they were in a war economy and they needed to um, make compromises to fund their war. And that was one of them. It was a very effective way of funding their insurgency. But now that they are, they are at a time of quote unquote peace, it's seen as religiously taboo, and and so and and so it's been banned. But yeah, it's you know the, these these kinds of ebbs and flows are very very normal parts of of day to day life in Afghanistan, and that as is unfortunately the the very dramatic and often violent changes of government which of which there's been five in the last 45 years and so you know although life under the Taliban now is has become vastly worse for a large portion of the population particularly women it's something that Afghans have, have become not immune to but um, immune to the effects of and it's no surprise and so they um, Afghans do have a I mean it's 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 cliched the the term resilience, the amount it's used to describe Afghans, but it's a cliche for a reason. You know, there, there is a, a resilience, the likes of which that, you know, you and I would find very hard to to discover in ourselves under the same circumstances, I think. Just to reflect on not just the resilience of Afghanistan, but perhaps the beauty of it, because there are a few photos in here that do depict the beauty of it. And one of them that I wanted to just end our chat on was the dawn photograph in Wazuts in Badakhshan Wakan Corridor, which is a village that lies almost 3000 meters above sea level between the borders of Pakistan, Tajikistan and China. To describe it, it's this gorgeous mist of mountains, slightly dusted with snow, and it could be, I don't know, anywhere really. When I was looking at it, I was just so enamored with the scenery of it and there you know you don't really see humans in the picture you see the natural landscape at its most beautiful and I just wondered if you could I guess reflect on your time in Afghanistan and was that a reflection of one of those moments for you when you stood back where you happen to be in a village and there's a war going on or there's violence and disadvantage and trauma but then you know there's this natural scene that has taken you and you've taken this photograph yeah i was i was constantly awed by the, the scenery of afghanistan um particularly as a photographer when everything you photograph has a backdrop of these you know vast mountains that the mountains you're talking about in that photograph are you know they're probably higher than our highest mountain but it's just a you know it's just another valley in afghanistan and the light there is incredible it's, it's a lot softer than we're used to in Australia. And then obviously the, the, the people who are populating that landscape, uh, I'm endlessly curious about them. And yeah, I, I, the, the, the question of the juxtaposition of the, the violence and the war with this, you know, beautiful natural beauty and the um, humanity and warmth and sense of humor of the people was you know, I suppose like any good story or any good book or movie, they coexisted and and all melded together to 
create this, you know, this fascinating social and, and physical landscape that is this story that will never end, but which traverses these, you know, really dramatic and touching and heartbreaking chapters. Yeah. Will you go back? Yes. If they let me. Yeah. Well, I'll be really interested to see what comes of mm. it. Yeah. Mm. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time and being so thoughtful in your responses to my probing questions. I really do appreciate it. And uh, thank you and thank you to Melbourne University Publishing for drawing your work together in this way because it's been a real experience for me to get to see Afghanistan through your eyes and also through the eyes of Afghanis because I feel that you have really captured or it seems that as an outsider, you've captured them really well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. And thanks for your very thoughtful and probing and considered questions and, and um, perspective on it. It's really interesting for me to hear because the a lot of the photographs, because I've seen them so much, have, have lost some of their meaning to me. So it's it's really nice for me to hear how they're, what they mean to other people who are seeing them for the first time. Oh, well, no, I'm really glad to hear that. I've been speaking with Andrew Quilty, who is an award-winning Australian photojournalist. We've been talking about This Is Afghanistan 2014 to 2021, which has been published by Mygonia Press, which is an imprint of Melbourne University Publishing. And Andrew is the recipient of nine Walkley Awards, including the Gold Walkley for his work on Afghanistan, as you can tell where he was based for a number of years and has received many other awards as well for not only his photos, but his investigations into massacres committed by a CIA-backed Afghan militia as well. And do check out his other book, August in Kabul, which was released in 2022. If our conversation today has raised any issues for you, and if you're a person who's been affected by overseas conflicts, you can call the Witness to War National Multilingual Telephone Hotline on 1800 845 198. The free hotline is run by the Forum of Australian Services to Survivors of Torture and Trauma and provides trauma counselling to people in Australia affected by ongoing global wars and overseas conflicts. Alternatively, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. This is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I am now joined by Dr Emma Shortis, who is Senior Researcher of the International and Security Affairs Programme at the Australia Institute. She's also a historian and um, talks to us on this show about US politics very often. And she's the author of an exceptional book as well about the alliance between Australia and the United States. She is going to be out doing a lot of talking in public events as well as that I can see uh, coming up in Adelaide and Melbourne. She's getting everywhere talking to some very fancy people and we're lucky to have her talking with us today about US politics and foreign policy, among other things. So it is my pleasure to welcome back onto the show for 2024, 
Emma Shortis. Hi there, Emma, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much, and thanks for that lovely introduction. And it is my pleasure. I'm a little bit jealous that you get to share a stage with both Greg Jericho and Yanis Varoufakis. Yes, I'm incredibly lucky. We're, we're so um, lucky to be able to speak to Yanis Varoufakis about his new book in the, in the next couple of weeks. I think um, it'll be such an important intervention into Australian politics. You know, he has such a refreshing um, perspective on economics and, and all kinds of things. So I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. Yeah, and he has been very outspoken on Gaza as well. Mm. So it's great that um, you have the likes of him, and uh, I'm sure it'll be really fun to, um, yeah, to get to ask him all of your burning questions. <laughs> um, I'll slip you a few. I um, just, you know, do me a favour. But let's get into my questions for you because I've had burning questions for you, Emma, across the whole summer and in the start of February, and I've been saving them up for this very moment. So I'm going to do my best to get them all out. But first of all, I wanted to talk about I'm probably going to upset some people, but Tucker Carlson, I know we thought we'd never have to utter his name again once he left mm. Fox, but unfortunately that isn't the case. Uh, he did go on a trip to Russia and we saw um, John Stewart do a, quite a good piece on it um, mm. around his fascination with Russian supermarkets. But then also we were hearing about and seeing some of the questions he put to President Vladimir Putin. Uh, it seems like it was a very softball interview, and apparently that's actually what Vladimir Putin said on Russian TVs, that he thought <laughs> he got a really easy go of it. So I don't know if that was exactly what Tucker Carlson was hoping for, um, but what do you make of this development and this intersection or mingling of suddenly American media, right-wing media, with Russia and its fascination with a Soviet country? It is such a, a weird... Um, world that we live in, isn't it, Amy? Like to have this kind of redux situation where we're back talking about John Stewart's takes on Tucker Carlson, mm. you know, it feels like we've kind of gone back a decade in time. But we did have this really um, bizarre scene, I think that is the only way to describe it, where Tucker Carlson, who of course was dropped in disgrace from Fox News and now is kind of running his own little media fiefdom, um, which is, you know, of course still very popular amongst the far right of the United States but doesn't have a whole lot of mainstream cut through except when he does wild things like this, like secure an interview with the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. And, you know, I'm sure, Amy, the only way he did that was by making sure that, you know, Putin and his advisers and the team around him were assured that it would be a softball interview. You know, Putin is very good at politics and he's very good at imagery as well and there's just no way he would have agreed to an interview that he thought would make him look bad. So the whole thing was staged very carefully and, and Putin did his usual thing, you know, of keeping people waiting. He kept Tucker Carlson waiting for an hour or two, which is uh, actually quite short for Putin. He's notorious for doing doing these kind of petty power moves or using these petty power moves against people that he's speaking to or, or negotiating with. And so what we saw then was Tucker Carlson have this like several hours long interview with Vladimir Putin where Putin kind of opined on centuries of, of Russian history, gave these kind of monotonous history lectures while while Carlton's, Carlson has his kind of usual shocked face on, <laughs> um, his, his thinking face, I should say. And... 
it, it was, you know, it was an entirely softball inter- interview. He didn't ask any difficult questions about Putin's actions in Ukraine or the future of the war or Putin's, you know, threat really to the rest of Europe. Poland came up a number of times, which which many commentators paid a great deal of attention to because I think there is this sense that, you know, the the forces on the American right, you know, including Tucker Carlson, is pretty happy really for Russia to do what it wants, which is just an extraordinary shift, like one of the the most remarkable shifts in American politics since the end of the Cold War, where exactly as you said, Amy, you know, the Soviet Union was the existential enemy to the United States for decades. And now we have this situation where the far right and, I mean, the right generally, I should say, in American politics seems aligned with Russia. And I think many people, you know, in in a way that it's completely fair enough, find that quite confounding because the conservative right in America has always kind of styled itself as champions of democracy versus autocracy. You know, it was the democracy of the United States versus the autocracy of the Soviet Union. And so the logic tells us that, of course, conservative Americans should be on the side of Ukrainians who are fighting for their sovereignty as a nation and also fighting for democracy against an invading autocracy. So Logic tells us one thing, but in reality, what you see is a far right really aligned with Russia. And I think what what happens often is you'll see analysis that kind of explains that away by saying, well, Trump has Donald Trump has captured the Republican Party, and Donald Trump loves dictators. You know, he loves strong men. He loves men who have kind of unlimited power. So of course, he admires Vladimir Putin. You know, he admires the dictator of North Korea, he he admires Viktor Orban because they exercise kind of unlimited political power and that's what Trump wants. And therefore, because that's what Trump wants and because he's control he has effective control of the Republican Party, that's what the Republican Party is falling behind. And that that's true to an extent. But what I think it misses is the deeper ideological alignment between Vladimir Putin's Russia and the far right in the United States, which is to say that the far right of the United States actually admires not just Putin's kind of ability to be an effective strongman, you know, to kind of have an iron fist of control over his nation, but the way in which he's doing that. So the far right kind of sees Putin's Russia as as basically a kind of successful white ethnostate where minorities are oppressed, violently oppressed, and things like the institution of heterosexual marriage are kind of put at the centre of policy, you know, control over women, control over women's bodies, patriarchal power as kind of central and and unmoving and unquestionable. And they admire that um, quite openly, in fact. You know, they're not, they're not trying to hide it. Steve Bannon, for example, um, who was, you know, Trump's advisor early on in his first term and a kind of really an architect of his successful campaign in, in 2016 has kind of summed it up when he said that, um, and I'm quoting, Putin ain't woke, right? So this is that's the ideological alignment. So I think mm. that's kind of, that explains really a lot of what's going on here. And I think so much of that is missed when people talk about, you know, that Trump loves Putin, because as I said, you know, of course he does, but there are reasons that he does. You know, it's not always Trump leading the Republican Party or leading a Republican ideology. Trump will change his ideology, you know, depending on where the political winds are blowing. He doesn't care. Like, he'll fo- he will follow that the kind of um, ideology of, of Bannon and um, 
other kind of, you know, podcasters and YouTubers of the far right because he sees political gain in it. And so that's kind of why this alignment has happened um, and why Tucker Carlson, you know, is happy to give these kind of softball interviews and do the most ridiculous segments about Russian supermarkets and how much you can buy in them and how great they are. I do highly recommend that, John Stewart, yeah. clip that you mentioned, Amy. It's, it's very, like, it's horrifying that it's such... Um, it's it's kind of cool to see John Stewart, you know, back back doing um, his best work in that sense. As much as it's kind of scary that it is, it does feel like going back in time. Like it is really incisive commentary on on the on the sheer ridiculousness really of the situation, um, which is you know the far right kind of celebrating the violence of a dictatorial regime. That's what's mm. happening. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what's really great or refreshing is that. You know, you get some John Stewart sweariness in there. <laughs> like it finally someone feels that they can just be themselves and like not be, I guess, so PC on American mm. TV, which feels like everyone gets beeped all the time. Um, but also that, yeah, I mean, it was so absurd watching Tucker Carlson sniff bread through plastic in <laughs> a Russian supermarket. Like, uh, yeah, it was very surreal. And get excited about a trolley that stayed where it mm -hmm. was up at an S, a travelator. I don't know. It was just so crazy. You have to That's watch so it. Strange. I'll retweet it onto our channel if anyone um, wants to go and look at that video. Uh, Emma, relating to Russia, Alexei Navalny has mm. died and we've finally seen uh, Russia give the body of Navalny to his mother after she very stoically um insisted on staying there until it was given to her so that she could have a funeral. And obviously um, we've seen world leaders, many of them come out either directly or indirectly saying that uh, Russia, the Russian state, and obviously Putin being the leader of that state, is behind his death. And Russia denies that, saying that there's a sudden death syndrome or sudden I mean, I honestly can't really get my head around it. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens, whether we do ever know truly how he mm. died. Uh, but this is very timely because we have so-called elections coming up in Russia. Um, and, you know, it is implied also by those world leaders that, you know, they were getting rid of a distraction and the only true opposition in Russia um, what are your thoughts on Joe Biden's response to the death of Navalny and, you know, the broader international response? Look, I, I, Amy, I think Joe Biden um, is one of those leaders who's come out very strongly um, and, and saying pretty unequivocally, yeah, as you said, that, that Russia, the Russian state and Putin are responsible for his death. You know, Biden's kind of said there's no question really that, that Russia is not responsible for what has happened, that this idea of sudden death is you know, completely ridiculous and it's not even really trying to hide what's mm. happened because the point the point is, of course, in all all situations like this where a, dicta, a dictatorial government or a dictatorial regime is making a statement about opposition, it's, it's, it's telegraphing a message to anybody who dares to think that they can challenge power, you know, this is what will happen to you. We have no qualms about murdering at distance, you know, murdering people who oppose our power. That's the whole point of, of sending this message. And, and you're right, Amy, this is happening in the lead-up to a, um, 
an election uh, in square, a scare quotes election in Russia in mid March, where Putin is is seeking a fifth term as president of Russia, and there's no question, of course, that he will win that election as he has won election bef- elections before with you know significant percentages of the, the vote hitting kind of eighty or ninety percent. I think it's fairly safe to predict that that's that's the result that we will see again. Um, and Biden, you know, has been really clear about this, and I think this is kind of where he Biden is at his strongest. You know, he has decades of experience in foreign policy. He kind of grew up, I suppose, politically in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee during the Cold War. And so he very much still adheres to that kind of um, Cold War framing of the world as, you know, democracies versus autocracies. He said, you know, um, at the beginning of his presidency, basically, that, you know, that's his foreign policy doctrine, that we live in a world of autocracy versus democracy. And in what is a kind of relatively clear-cut situation like this with Navalny in Russia, Biden comes out quite strongly. The question is kind of, I suppose, what do you actually do about it in in terms of, you know, how do you oppose this kind of autocracy? So the Americans are talking, of course, about sanctions again, um, but we know that sanctions don't necessarily work. You know, often sanctions, well, most of the time, sanctions really just hit in in autocratic societies, you know, like in places like Iran, in places like Russia, they hit the poorest and most vulnerable um, people in, in those countries as opposed to the kind of ruling elite, which is able to insulate itself because of its the concentration of power that it holds, it's able to insulate itself against those kinds of sanctions. So, so the Biden administration will still, um, I think rightly, of course, pursue targeted sanctions against against Russian um, you know members of the of the Russian state and members of Putin's regime but the problem is that Biden is um, and I'm sure we'll get to this kind of is is hamstrung at, at the moment by a Congress which is refusing to do anything which is a refusing to provide funding to Ukraine in order to oppose Russia so Biden has limited options in this sense when it comes to opposing Putin and and is in this kind of weird um, Twilight Zone as well that we talked about earlier, where he has kind of grown politically come of age when he's had Republicans on his side in opposing autocratic Russia, you know, in opposing the Soviet Union. And now he doesn't have that in in the fact that, you know, the Republicans are pretty happy with, with Putin ideologically. They kind of like what he's doing. And so Biden's stuck in this bind around what he can do to oppose the violence of of Putin's regime, and he's quite clearly frustrated by that. He's openly, um, I think, frustrated by that, frustrated and angered by Republicans in Congress kind of holding this, holding funding hostage and constraining his ability to oppose um, Putin's regime and also to support democratic movements in um, in Russia itself. Because, of course, even, even with the, the travesty of Navalny's death, that democratic opposition hasn't gone away. You know, Navalny's wife has been just so incredibly brave in continuing to speak out, into in speaking about his legacy and the and the continuing opposition within Russia and the dream of a, a democratic Russia. Like, just what an extraordinary woman, mm. extraordinarily brave woman who's who's met Biden and, and met um, American leaders as well. So that opposition opposition hasn't gone away. But so far, at least, Putin has been incredibly successful at at squashing any dissent. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like it's his major skill as a mm. leader. Um, and certainly we've seen Vladimir Zelensky, who is the leader of Ukraine, mm. uh, coming out and being very outspoken um, in regards to 
US support. Um, he's been obviously very grateful to the support mm. from many countries, not just the United States, in terms of um, not only funding but actual military supplies, uh, which Ukraine desperately need. He said on the anniversary of this war um, that the death toll at the moment for Ukrainian troops is at about 31,000, so that's not counting civilians. Um, US numbers had put it at 70,000, so I feel like this is going to be something to look back on and have to be recalculated because mm. um, there are so many people missing as well. So, I mean, this is a, a situation that's very dire and we've also, you know, seen just how dire it is in the sense that Zelensky put it to um, the US that if you don't approve the new funding uh, within one month that millions more Ukrainians will be killed. He's very concerned that they're, mm. you know, getting towards a tipping point Russia is taking over other areas in Ukraine. And um, although Ukraine is doing really well, um, considering the lack of resources it's had, uh, you know, it's nothing against the amount of resourcing that Russia has been able to put behind this war in comparison and, you know, the number of troops that they have put there and obviously lost. Mm. Um, so I wonder, you know, given that we're coming up to this tipping point and, um, Biden is set to host some key decision makers um, in Congress to try and get this over the line. You know, what are your thoughts on it? What do you think will be the outcome? Is it going to get over the line within the month that Zelensky is hoping for? Look, I mean, I, I certainly hope so. You know, I, mean, I share your um, concerns really about the fate of Ukrainians when they're, you know, effectively being abandoned by just a couple of members of the US Congress. You know, it's not as if like this is a, a kind of majority of Republicans mm. who are po opposed to funding. It's like a, it's a couple of people who are holding this funding package hostage. And that's why Biden is, is so frustrated, but he's also constrained in his ability to provide funding. You know, he doesn't have that much power in the office of the presidency to actually supply money and um, munitions. So he's he's really waiting on Congress and that's why he's having those meetings. And Biden is a really skilled um, congressional negotiator. You know, he's been in the Senate for a long time. He's been really effective at, you know, kind of reaching across the aisle, I suppose, to use a political cliche. Like that was whole, a whole the whole part of his pitch for the presidency that was that he could work with and has a track record of working with Republicans on significant issues. So I think Biden is hopeful that he will be able to get it across the line. There are enough Republicans who support providing funding to Ukraine. There are enough of them in Congress who still have that kind of framing of, of, of Russia as the autocratic enemy of democracy. The question will be around whether the Speaker, Mike Johnson, who was elected after Kevin McCarthy was um ousted from the speakership by Matt Gates and, and a couple of those really far-right kind of extreme um, Congress people. There's about six of them. Um, the question will be whether he, what he is willing to do, whether he is willing to bring this legislation back to the floor of the House for a vote, where it would pass. We, as I understand the numbers, there is a majority, there's majority support for this legislation, so it would pass, but he's at the moment refusing to bring it to the floor for a vote because of the desires of those, you know, very few Congress people to not provide funding to Ukraine who are supported by Donald Trump in this. So, 
So the question will be about around Johnson and, you know, what he's willing to risk around his own political career and his own political beliefs, because, of course, he is an ardent Trump supporter. He was one of the authors of the amicus brief that that supported overturning the results of the 2020 election. So this is a Trump, a Trump guy kind of down to his core. And so negotiating with him for Biden is, is pretty much impossible because, you know, none of these members of Congress are negotiating in good faith. We've seen that with the this same package of legislation, which they insisted from, you know, months, months back had to include provisions for the southern border of the, the U.S., the border with Mexico, you know, mm. they've got this whole thing going about, whole scare campaign going about the border crisis and how Biden needs to take care of his own before he can, you know, be handing billions of dollars over to Ukraine. This is this is kind of their message. So, of course, Biden negotiates in good faith, you know, puts all these provisions in for funding for the border and they reject it because, and again, you know, no, nobody's hiding the ball here. Like the Republicans are being very open about this. They rejected this funding package because Trump didn't want Biden to have a political win in the lead up to the election. You know, they, the border yeah. issue they think plays well for them. Um, it gets some votes, it gets voters angry and gets them turnout. You know, polling is showing that like huge percentages of Republicans think the border issue is the biggest problem facing America. You know, you see this awful, awful rhetoric, like literally out of, out of the Nazi playbook around that Trump is using, you know, saying that immigrants, and this is a direct quote, are poisoning the blood of our country. Like this this is the kind of state, exactly, this is kind mm. of the, the levels of fascism that we're talking about, like these people are not playing games, and so you know this is kind of the, this is the situation really that that Biden finds himself in. You know he's not negotiating with people in who are acting in good faith. They're deliberately sabotaging these agreements for their own political ends, and so negotiating that for Biden is just going to be incredibly difficult. And of course, you know there are millions of Ukrainians whose fate hangs in the balance, who are waiting for this assistance. Yeah, I certainly oh. think it's possible. Like Europe could step step up a bit, but you know we've been waiting, I suppose, for Europe to do that mm. for a long time. Um, so, you know, I think we have to have hope. But politics in the United States is is just so broken that I don't think there's a quick way out. No, yeah, um, it's a. Uh, we'll get to back to domestic politics in just a tick. Um, but I want to now jump into foreign policy in the Middle East, mm-hmm. um, which obviously has been a decades long, longer than that um, issue. And something that really piqued my interest, and it was on February the 8th, 2024, and it made lots of headlines everywhere because Joe Biden had mistakenly called um, the Egyptian leader, mm-hmm. uh, LCC, uh, President of Mexico. And um, some people pointed out that actually CC was like a nickname um, for the Mexican president, or there was like some reason why he'd made that, Mm. you know, mental error. Um, And I wasn't really interested in that part of the video. Um, I was interested in what he said after it, which many people didn't seem to care about. Um, And so I went back to the transcript on the White House webpage. So if anyone wants to read this, they can. It says, remarks by President Biden from the 8th of Feb. Um, It's right towards the end where Joe Biden is really outlining what he's doing behind the scenes in the lead up to the October 7 attacks uh, by Hamas. Mm -hmm. And he, I mean, he was saying at the start 
what he's been doing behind the scenes in terms of trying to get aid across to Gaza. And, you know, I've been talking to um, Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. He said he's been, you know, talking to other um, Middle Eastern countries like the Qataris, the Egyptians. I've been on the phone with the Saudis to get aid into Gaza. He says there are innocent people, innocent women and children who are badly in need of help. That's what we're pushing right now. I'm pushing very hard to deal with this hostage ceasefire tirelessly, blah, blah, blah. So he's saying, look at all that I'm doing. I've been calling everyone. You know, I'm the statesman. Um, But there's also something really interesting he says about these, as I said, the prelude to October 7. He said, there's also negotiations, you may recall, in the very beginning Right before Hamas attacked, I was in contact with the Saudis and others to work out a deal where they would recognise Israel's right to to exist, um, let them or make them part of the Middle East, recognise them fully in return for certain things that the United States would commit to do. And the commitment to that we're proposing to do um, were two items. He said he wasn't going to go into detail, but one of them was to deal with the protection against their arch enemy to the northeast. And the second was by providing ammunition and materiel for them to defend themselves. Coincidentally, that's the time frame when this broke out. I have no proof for what I'm about to say, but it's not unreasonable to suspect that Hamas understood what was about to take place and wanted to break it up before it happened. And then he finished his remarks abruptly and left. And I was like, what on earth did he just verbally dump at the end of (laughs) remarks about his private conversations and, like, negotiating? And and he was using very broad but still specific terms. And I wondered, Emma, if you had any idea what he was alluding to, what he was suggesting that Hamas was trying to detract from or Mm. blow up essentially um, in terms of some kind of diplomatic deal that was going to eventually recognise Israel and and, and kind of integrate them into the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, it's such a good point that you make because, you know, so much of that press conference was was taken over by this apparent, you know, verbal slip by a senile old old man. Um, and I don't think that's what it was, you no. know, for what it's worth. Biden makes gaffes like that all the time. And the, the remarks that, the incredible remarks that you just outlined after that shows fairly clearly that Biden is in control of his faculties, yeah? Like he's got a grasp, a strong grasp of of what is happening in the Middle East and of his own priorities in foreign policy. So, like, there's there's an awful lot to unpack in there. But I think essentially what Biden is alluding to is this project, I suppose, of what's called normalisation. So countries in the Middle East, of course, have refused to recognise Israel um, because of the, the history, the, you know, the long history that we can't go into there of, of the colonisation of, of Palestine. And so there's been a, a, a kind of situation almost of retrenchment where big um, Arab countries like Saudi Arabia refuse to recognise Israel and, and this kind of stalemate, I suppose, well, it's not really a stalemate, it's an ongoing cycle of violence continues. And Americans had kind of seen or decided that a path forward through this was what's called normalisation, was convincing the Saudis to recognise Israel and its right to exist in exchange for, you know, a number of concessions. And, And in this case, it sounds like essentially kind of protection from Iran. So it's kind of using this, you know, what, what Kissinger might call triangular diplomacy to, cr- to try and um, create a situation where Israel's right to exist is 
normalised um, on the part of Arab countries. And then I think what's what Biden's the leap that Biden's making is that many um, Muslim and Arab peoples saw this as a way to leave Palestine behind, right? To to put the question of Palestinians to the side for everybody to forget about. This was other Arab nations, big, rich Arab nations like Saudi Arabia, effectively sacrificing Palestine in for their own interests. And then the argument goes, and again, you know, I can't speak as much as Biden can, I can't speak to the truth of this, is that part of the motivation for the um, obscene attacks of October 7 was to disrupt this process, was to disrupt normalisation and what they saw was the sidelining of Palestinians, you know, to be basically forever forgotten about by people who, you know, they feel should be their allies. And so it's not like I wouldn't say it's a conspiracy theory. There's a certain logic to it, but we don't have evidence. We don't have the evidence, at least publicly, to know if that was part of the motivations. It, w- it would certainly make a kind of obscene sense um, if it were, but we just don't know. And and so this is kind. Of, this was kind of Biden's policy. And again, it has. It really had its kind of parallels with Trumpism. You know, Trump's. Abraham Accords were seeking to do the same kind of thing to shore up the recognition of Israel in the Middle East, um, I guess, and sacrificing Palestinian claims in the process. So there's a certain continuity here. But I guess if I I can, what I want to do there, Amy, is kind of circle back to, to those comments about Biden's age, because so much I think of what we miss or what gets missed when, you know, the focus, as exactly as you just so rightly pointed out, when the focus is on Biden's gaffes instead of the actual substance of his policies, is that the idea of Biden being too old becomes this kind of really simplistic question about, like, are we being ageist? Like, do his Mm. verbal slips mean that he's, um, you know, declining cognitively? When I think amongst so many American voters and particularly young voters who are watching what's happening in Gaza, Biden is too old, not because he's making slips and he's 81, but because he is kind of set in this way of understanding politics and diplomacy that is really um, kind of Kissinger-like, you know, in 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 the kind of shuttle diplomacy that he's engaging in in the kind of trade-offs that he's making or attempting at least to make between the Saudis and the Israelis, for example, that's an old, that I think many young voters see that as an old and really callous way of doing politics and doing foreign policy. And for Biden in particular, that's really harmful because his whole pitch as president, you know, leading up to, to the last election was that he is a compassionate guy like yeah. Biden's whole poli- that image. yeah he's he's exactly like you mm-hmm. know his image is kind of of like grandpa joe who just loves everybody you know he loves his sons unconditionally you know the loss of his wife and his daughter when he was really young and then if his son just like cast this kind of shadow of grief over him but the grief you know was turned into compassion and generosity to people suffering everywhere you know that was his pitch to Americans is I see you and I see your suffering and I love you and I don't want suffering for anybody and his apparent callousness in the face of what is happening in Gaza is just catastrophically undermining that issue uh, undermining that image of him as a loving grandfather you know effectively who who loves children particularly and wants children everywhere to thrive and what is happening in Gaza is just 
just torpedoing that image. And so that, again, you know, what, what gets missed when we're focusing on gaffes is how much his stance or his lack really of action on mm. Gaza, as much as he talks about behind the scenes, you know, he, the, the truth of it is that he has immense power to affect what's happening in Gaza and he's choosing, you know, for his own reasons that he can articulate really clearly, he's choosing for his own reasons not to do that. You know, he's choosing, for example, not to say to his friend, Bibi, that's it, we're cutting you off. Because he yeah. could do that, you know, he could end it tomorrow and he's choosing not to, again, for his own reasons that he can articulate and, you know, are very logical to people who've been watching American foreign policy for a, a long time. But that doesn't that doesn't mean that people, you know, who he hopes will vote for him in November see it that way. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, Emma. But, I mean, he has said Israel's response is over the top and then mm. doesn't actually do anything about stopping the response. So exactly. um, we should get people to read Mehdi Hassan's piece for The Guardian where he writes about that very issue and what Biden could easily do mm. and the historical precedents for it. It's called Biden Can End the Bombing of Gaza Right Now. Here's how. I'll put the link up to that on our social media. Thank you so much, Emma, for joining us today. It's been wonderful to talk US politics with you. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Amy. I've just been chatting with Dr Emma Shortus from the Australia Institute. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.